0: Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for disruption and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, their clients view us. It's my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Dina Prostos, AIA, founder of Indigo River, as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Dina is an architect, an engineer, as well as a futurist, and as you will see, all around creative original. She's inspired by the intersection of design, technology, and nature. Born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska, Dina has a deep rooted appreciation for nature and mankind's ability to design, build, and create resilient infrastructure in some of the world's toughest conditions. She has led projects around the world, including heavy civil construction, marine engineering, and waterfront architecture. A graduate of NJIT in architecture and NJIT in civil engineering and from Harvard Business School, as if that wasn't impressive enough, Her career has taken her from the Staten Island Ferry Terminal to the Israeli Defense Force to the Black Sea in Georgia. In 2016, she joined McLaren Engineering Group, where she worked in the Marine and Infrastructure Department, leading the design team on New York City's citywide ferry projects. Then as a director for DCAK MSA Architecture to round out her architecture experience. Taking from all these diverse learning experiences, in 2018, she founded Indigo River, the certified women's owned business enterprise, WBE, committed to helping our society evolve together with our environment. Dina, thank you for, for agreeing to be here on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me, Christian.
0: Awesome. So... Um, You have a really interesting background, and I'm really excited to talk to you about kind of how all of this has come to be from your education to where you are now Mm -hmm. and the different types of projects that you've worked on. So our audience would love to get to know you better. Could you tell us a little bit about growing up in Anchorage, Alaska in your childhood?
1: Sure. (laughs) Uh, So I was born and raised in Anchorage, and as my mom likes to say, my mom is born and raised in Sparta, Greece. So she was kind of plucked from the Mediterranean and taken to the end of the earth, as she calls it, to Alaska. Um, And and I have two brothers. We grew up there. Um, Much of our summers were spent outdoors. We camped, we hiked, we spent all of our off of school time in nature. Um, We have a great appreciation for it. And I think a big part of it, we used to fight with our parents that school would let out and the TVs and the cable boxes would be unplugged. We weren't allowed to stay inside in the summer at all. So whether we were actually leaving town and, you know, leaving town means 15 minutes outside of town, you're in completely untouched, (laughs) undisturbed nature or fishing in our backyard. We, uh, we just spent all of our time outdoors and the summer in Alaska is gorgeous. It's sunny all the time and sun doesn't set. So it's always light as opposed to contrast of the winter. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great place to grow up, family environment. We were all very athletic and musically um, exposed to different types of disciplines, and I think it shaped both of my brothers and I very much in, in how we've pre- pre- proceeded and advanced in our careers.
0: Okay, and so did you live there your entire childhood until you went to college, or?
1: Yep, I graduated high school at 17, and I left for college, and I've I've gone back. occasion to visit but i I haven't lived in the state since i was 17 okay wow! Uh, i've been on the east coast since so whatever 15 20 years now
0: i do remember (laughs) we went there i went on a uh, an alaskan cruise way back with my with my family and i remember the it was a summertime thing, yeah. so and the, it was light the entire day. Yeah. I think it only got dark for like two or three hours at night, which is crazy. But I always remember, even as a kid, thinking, "Wow, this has to really, really be bad." In the in the in, in the, the winter, winter.
1: yeah, but. you pay the price. It's, there's a balance there, but yeah. yeah. No, my husband and I got married on summer solstice, which we had a sign: the the bar closes when the sun sets. So we were just up all night. <laughs> it, was, it was great.
0: That's great. So, so what uh, what did you do as a kid growing up? in terms of were there any hints of wanting to be an architect or an engineer?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think if you, if you ask my mom, she saved something from probably third or fourth grade of a, like a stained glass window or school had a competition for for all the students. And um, I had, I had drawn something. I don't think I was so artistically inclined, but I was always very deep in thought about, you know, conceptual and, and purpose and meaning in, in our built world. Um, so I, it was always a thought to go into architecture and it wasn't necessarily a sure thing. Uh, my grandfather is a civil engineer. I, I always had that in my mind as kind of a practical balance. Um, but I, I think ultimately, the, the richness in, in culture and history and, and the way that architecture reflects, you know, society's values in it, in the built world um, spoke to me much more. Got it.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so I like to ask this of, of people in the design, you know, yeah. world. Um, you know, can you describe your childhood home in detail? Do you remember it? Absolutely. And,
1: okay. <laughs> I could try it. <laughs> I don't know how accurate it would be, but I could definitely try it. Um, we went through a home renovation when I was, I think probably in middle school. So um, it was a kitchen renovation, but I remember kind of the receiving end. My mom is the client kind of what, what the talk was at the dinner table while we were going through it and some of the struggles and thinking what a great thing to be able to come in and, and upgrade someone's home and leave them feeling so much happier about whatever Their dwelling is. And now I didn't go into residential architecture, but I I have that feeling about anything that I get the opportunity to touch and shape in in the realm of design,
0: which is funny. So that's part (laughs) of the reason why I asked that question. That's how I got into architecture was my mom was renovating our house all the time. And I was always fascinated by that but agreed. I'd never wanted to do any sort of single family residential. It seemed like a, like a a horrible existence for an architect, but, (laughs) um, so you describe yourself as someone with deep rooted, deep rooted appreciation for nature Mm -hmm. and mankind's ability to design, build and create resilient infrastructure in some of the world's toughest conditions. You know, I, I love that. Um, can you explain, explain that some more?
1: Sure. So I think, uh, one of the things I kind of the first time we'll sit down and, and talk about a project in terms of resiliency, there's always this uh, confusion or, or maybe lack of understanding of how resiliency differs from sustainability. And they, they have sort of an inverse relationship. So one of the first things I'll say is uh, in terms of resilient, I'm sorry, in terms of sustainability Sustainability really looks at the built world's impact on the environment. And what what materials are we choosing? How sustainable are they? Are you know future generations? Are we are we stripping the earth of those resources or are we designing and executing in a sustainable way? Now, the inverse of that, looking at resiliency, is what is nature's impact on the on the built world and how can we design for that? So we're in this moment where you know sea level rise and climate change, and there are all these kind of trending facets that we need to focus on. And when we build, it's not for, it's not even, I know you have a focus on, you know, the client relationship with the architect. And I, I struggle with that myself because when we design, I'm not necessarily designing for the client. I'm often designing, you know, public infrastructure for the end user and not even for the end user of today, but, you know, future generations. So I think the ability to look forward in the timeline of what the design timeline is, what the construction timeline is, and what the design life is intended to be you you must design with a resilient mindset. Uh, We can't predict what future weather patterns will be, except that we're finding them to be more of a challenge and more of an obstacle than they have been previously. Mm -hmm. So having that seed planted early on in the design process is is so important. And it becomes abundantly clear when when it's not at the core of design and the vulnerabilities are are exposed.
0: So picking up on resilience, it's a word that's thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear it in, um, in not only obviously what we do as professionals in the design and construction world, but I hear it now in our, you know, our kids school, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a value that they yeah. want to instill in education, right? Resilience yeah. in humans. So in light of the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, how has resilience sort of even evolved for you?
1: I've reflected on that a lot this past year because I think I mean I think everyone has been forced to no one could have predicted what twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one has brought. Um in terms of just even, you know, daily daily habits being shifted and, and almost forced to adapt. Um and, and that's at the core of it, is is the willingness to to be flexible and not rigid in, in your approach to everything really, because Things happen that are out of our control, and if you're you're rigid and you can't adapt, that's when you know sheer stresses and, and breaks and tears happen. You have to be able to to kind of roll with it, um, and find other ways to achieve the same goals.
0: Okay, so has that it changed in your business the the idea since the pandemic of, of yeah, and I,
1: I think we set ourselves up well in in the respect that I've I've worked at other firms previously that um and I I respect and I'm I'm grateful for my my previous experiences, but a lot of them were founded much earlier where the, the shift with technology hadn't really been optimized. And, and many, you know, it was a question of what is a VPN or how can I get the email on my phone or I'm willing to work off hours, but I need access to these things. And, and I felt like I was hitting my head a lot, um, trying to, trying to do that in, in other environments. And so one of the things that we, we did from day one was to make a you know remote accessible environment and to, to shape our, our week and our daily, daily, weekly, monthly meetings in a way that whether or not we were in a room together on job sites all over New York or however we were spread out, we were able to keep a beat and and stay on it as we move forward. Right.
0: So you're, you're in Anchorage, you're 17, it's time to go to college. How'd you choose New Jersey? I didn't. So,
1: (laughs) so I, um, I got distracted for, for a a beat and talk about resilience and adaptation. (laughs) I, um, I had it in my head, to be an architect, but I was also, um, a little clouded by, I was a division one athlete and I was being recruited by several different schools. And on the one hand, I, I didn't really understand the, the importance of the five-year program in terms of architecture, licensure, licensure, and I ended up going kind of mesmerized with, um, university of Connecticut soccer program. And I went as an athlete, to play. And it was a phenomenal experience, but it, it didn't set in until really the end of the first semester. And I was taking kind of general undergraduate courses that weren't resonating with me were general business courses, whatever they were. And so I, I pivoted um, second semester and I kind of made a deal with myself that I'm going to take anything that in any way, shape or form relates to architecture and see if I feel that much more alive um, in my studies because uh, it just felt dull um my first semester and so i did that and i took art history and and different courses that in some way related to architecture and i i kind of knew midway through the semester that i needed to transfer there wasn't an architecture program i wish i would have looked a little bit more into landscape architecture because they <laughs> did have that program but i um i started Talking to to different schools and coaches also to be able to transfer in and play, uh, and NJIT ended up being a, a good fit in that they were transitioning from a Division II program to Division One, and I had you know Big East Division One experience that I, I could bring to the team and help that transition as well as a phenomenal school of architecture.
0: Wow, that's awesome! So you played yeah. D one soccer. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! So Thank how <laughs> how long did that did that go your entire career?
1: Yeah. So I played um, I played all four years of of the um athletic career that, that you're allowed to with NCAA. And I, I didn't ride short, thankfully I wasn't injured. I had no reason to, but I did continue my uh fifth year in architecture and my masters as a student coach within the program. Wow. That's yeah. really
0: cool. That yeah. that must have been an amazing experience.
1: It was and I, I kind of when I look back at it, I think um I'm a type of person that the busier I am, the Almost the happier I am, the more productive right. I am, the more fulfilled I am. And so I, I look back at college and I think at one point I was working like and I'll I'll count soccer as a job, but I was working like four or five different jobs. And it wasn't it wasn't for the money, it was because that shift in heads headspace and mindset, um, I think really benefits and informs everything. So even, you know, studio time, if I would Plan my weeks, and I would go to soccer practice early in the morning, and I never pulled an all-nighter. I think if you ask anyone in my class, I was probably the only person that ever pulled an all-nighter, and it comes with this, you know, OCD level of planning my time. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I would do that, and I think it, it, it helped me keep a structured and focused schedule throughout college um, to do well in architecture and also do well on the field.
0: So, that all this now makes more sense that you're a student athlete and especially <laughs> just sort of, you know, having done the research and, and, yeah. and the evolution of your career, mm-hmm. I feel like you've done an awful lot in a, you know, in a short period, right? And seeing as that you were an athlete and the way that you you work through that, I look at my own daughter as, a, as an athlete in gymnastics and the way that she, even, even at a young age, I mean, she's only 12, but the way she's able to, uh, you know, compartmentalize mm-hmm. kind of Schoolwork has to be done by this time, so that yep. I have this at practice, so that I can do this here, and then even scheduling free time in yep. a sense, yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing, and you can accomplish a lot if you do it that way. Um, but I was an architecture student that never did an, uh, uh, an overnighter either, and all the two, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just I was. Us. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I I also kept a lot of my friends outside of architecture school. Like yep. a lot of them like to just kind of. To me, they always uh, they wasted a lot of time. Yes. They didn't focus A lot of on the
1: work done.
0: <laughs> totally <laughs> <Exactly>. empathize. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So uh, you, start your, you start your career with the Conti Group as an engineer. Oh, wait, actually, I want to go back. So, so you, you have an architecture degree. Now you go for civil engineering.
1: Yes. So I think from that mentality of an athlete and the discipline of an athlete, uh, I think I learned early on that, Whatever your natural strengths are and your your God given talents are, they're great. And that's, you know, one one side to look at. But the other side is what what are your shortcomings? What are your weaknesses? What do you need to work on? Um and I, I had that always kind of rooted in my my head from from soccer. I was naturally right footed, but what would limit me was my left foot. So I had to focus on training my left foot to be maybe not as good as my right foot, but but to tighten that gap for me as a, you know, well-rounded athlete to be able to perform still with my left foot when needed. Um, and I, I think that kind of mentality manifests itself in my academic career as well. When I was finishing up architecture school, I, I did very well and I received, you know, design awards in my first year and, and whatnot. And that felt good, but I, I was finishing my program and I just had this self-conscious, um, kind of vulnerability that I had identified that I didn't have a, a good enough technical understanding, which no one does when they finish architecture school, but but I was really focused on all right. If I'm going to do well in my career, I I need to to beef up on my technical chops. Um, so I I did, and I did that by going. I think it was before I even finished architecture schools. So in my last year, in my fifth year, I started taking master's courses for civil engineering, and there were a lot of bridge courses that I had to you know fill the gap with um, difference in kind of undergraduate requirements and i did that and the same thing happened again when i finished civil engineering and i and i got my degree it was you know great i can do all these calculations on a paper but i didn't have the practical knowledge to know how to apply that that technical knowledge uh and so i, I looked for my first role to be in the field it was also right at the turn of you know 2007 8 9 when the economy was plummeting and i thought All right, I can go and be a you know CAD jockey in a in a studio for a couple years, or I can go into the field and get some you know hands-on experience and understand design is very much a process. And if you're not engaging construction and how things are built in that process, there's a disconnect and it shows. So I wanted that was really important for me to understand in the field. Why are we? Well, first in the in the design office, why are we picking a certain material, and and in the field, how are we? putting it together and who are the people putting it together and what are their questions and what are their criticisms of the designers when they're doing this. And I, I kind of backpedaled to be able to understand that, that state of um, kind of those, those thoughts to inform my design. And my first job ended up being as a field engineer and then project engineer uh, with Conti and same thing. I, I leaned into any weakness or any shortcoming to be able to, in my mind, increase the trajectory of when I do come full circle back to design. Yeah. Um and so I did that for, for a number of years and and same thing. Anytime I felt a weakness, I kind of leaned into it and I'll I'll liken it to now I'm I'm coming back to the design world. But again, as an athlete, if you've ever trained with like one or two pound weights on your legs and even just walked around all day, you know that as soon as you take them off, you just feel light and free and you fast and you can do right. anything. And that was kind of my mentality early in my career of all right, doesn't come naturally to me. I, I haven't been exposed to it. Let me give my chance, myself, a chance to to learn about it and apply it. And I might not be the best. It may may turn into my strength. It may not, but it's certainly going to help me increase when I do focus on design. It'll inform a lot of those decisions, and the the questions will come naturally. Uh, and the the contacts, also the connections within the industry, to be able to pick up the phone and call a, a heavy civil contractor and say, "Hey, this is my condition. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think?" And right there, you've saved the client. Time, money, yeah, just overall, you're you're a better designer for it.
0: That is impressive. So, so I, I like this idea that you're you know you you're comfortable in one thing, but you forced yourself to to be uncomfortable in a sense and learn yes. something outside of that, which is which is impressive. And and so I, I guess you're you know now you're you're. Do you think I'm trying to re- rethink about how I would ask this? Do you think it's something where, you know, back in the day to become an architect, you had to have an apprenticeship, right? You mm-hmm. had to, you actually had to go into the field and work. Do you think we'd be better off having that these days? Is that kind of what you did for yourself in a sense?
1: Yeah. In many ways, I mean, if we go back to the Renaissance where it was the the artists and the craftsmen were, you know, one and the same or, or working very closely, there wasn't, you know, a design, bid, build process. It was very much design, build, just inherently by nature that, you would you know check in on the progress and tweak and it, a lot of the times it was beautifully designed from day one but a lot more of the times it was changed as you went along and so i feel like our our process and our project delivery methods have hindered and, and become an impediment to to the end result success and we've compartmentalized so much of the design process and the building process and the bidding and all of that kind of muddies the water in terms of a, a talent a talented architect's ability to execute,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, someone we have on staff here at Mancini Duffy is actually worked at a contractor. We brought yeah. him in for a uh-huh. for a large project that we're doing, and what I loved about him was he always would say, um, "Hey, I look at the drawings like a contractor looks at the drawings," you know, and and so we can. We go back and he'll tell you, no, you can't put that on a drawing. You can't show it that way. The contractor's going to laugh at you. I had an experience very early on in my career where I was sort of catapulted into a design position. <laughs> I had designed this building and it had this crazy stare. And I remember the contractor saying to me, how am I supposed to build this stair? You only gave like one inch on one yeah. side past, you know, these, this three-story wall. Yeah. How am I supposed to, you know, physically get in there? And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm dead. They're going to fire me. <laughs> and, he, and he did come back and say, luckily for you, I, I figured out a way of doing it. Yeah. I'm going to do it through the actual wall mm-hmm. and kind of work backwards. So, it, it all kind of worked out.
1: But, but now I'm sure every time you put pen to paper or draft exactly. or whatever, that's the question you're asking exactly. yourself is how, how this can happen? this be built? Exactly. How will it be built? And with that informing the design process, you're you're benefiting everyone along the way, all the stakeholders, the client, everyone.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, so as I said, you you started with the Conti Group as an engineer and you started on the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Mm-hmm. Um, can you take us through that part um, uh, You know, of your early career?
1: Sure. So I was you know fresh out of school it was a masters program but it was still you know very green in terms of exposure in the industry and i remember you know my first my first couple months it was just acronym soup i couldn't keep anything straight <laughs> i was like making my own cheat sheets of what all these things meant and to compound it i had a project manager who I, I still keep in touch with to this day but he was off the boat from Ireland and I couldn't understand a word he was saying <laughs> and even if it was words that I knew let alone acronyms that I didn't so it was it was a challenging period but I um, kind of grew through it got my my feet under me and I spent a year and a half on that project um and in many ways my design background came to be a strength within the team because it was a design build contract and I worked for the contractor but I was the appointed liaison between the design engineers and the contracting team. So whatever the constructability questions were, I was presenting to the design team, um, and, and with some empathy, but you know, very junior in my career. But it was it was a it was a perfect moment for me to be situated in, in that I was advocating for the constructability means and methods, but also absorbing. What the designers had in their mind when they designed it. Right, right, Absolutely. And this <clears> was
0: Staten Island Ferry.
1: This was Staten Island Ferry Terminal, okay. yeah.
0: So now was that the building itself, or also the infrastructure? That was the
1: infrastructure. It? it was I think seven, seven or eight bridges leading to, um, and, and several other um, stormwater improvements, drainage improvements. Um, a new bridge was erected. It was, it was enough to get exposure into you know heavy civil construction.
0: Right. Right. And then where did you go after uh, Conti Group?
1: Uh, so, well, that was really my first job with Conti, and I ended up being there, I think, five years. And so I, at 18 months, I, I raised my hand and said, hey, I'm, I felt a little bit kind of stagnant in, in what I was absorbing at that point. Like, all right, I've got my legs under me. I'm, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. I'm performing well. I'm getting good reviews, but, you know, what else? Uh-huh. Um, so I, you know, diplomatically raised my hand and said, hey, if there's something else out there for me, I'd you know, be eager to, to learn. And I was brought into a leadership development program, which allowed me to rotate through the different departments within the company. And that was to this day, one of the most valuable experiences I've had in my career in that again, with, with empathy, I, I understood, you know, why the accountants were on the field engineers to get everything entered and, and why the the marketing proposal seems needed our resumes to be updated. And there was just this, this moment of clarity and in, in, in all regards throughout the different departments of oh this is why they ask or this is why it needs to be done that way. And it was it's a lot of that. And so I spent a couple years rotating through different departments and I had expressed interest in working overseas. Um and so one of the things that uh came up, I was actually all ready to go work on a drainage job in, in Ghana, in Africa. I had all my immunizations and shots. Mm-hmm. And just literally the the week before I was supposed to go uh, one of my rotations was in the estimating department and one of the jobs that we had estimated on one, and it was a job in Israel. And because I was one of the people that estimated the job and was familiar with the the scope and the program, um, I agreed to, you know, pivot and go to Israel instead. Mm-hmm. And I spent about a year there, uh, you know, grew tremendously in my career. And, and personally, I think travel does that for, for anyone and everyone. Yeah. Um, and, and when I came back, I similarly rotated and had some exposure into, again, some marine engineering and, and master planning for, for ports, And it came time. It was right around the time I was getting married. I had recruit a lot of time off. So I, we said, you know, take a step back, let's get married. Let's take some time. And, um, I did that, ended up completely removing myself from the industry and helping my husband with his business for about 18 months, uh, before I then joined McLaren.
0: What, what business is that?
1: Uh, Le Gourmet factory. It's a, okay. Kitchen incubator and <laughs> cooking school that I, I ran the cooking school side of it. So, um, again, with the, the rotations that I had done through uh, the Conti group in the in the different, you know, the leadership program, business is business. Uh, so, it was a, a lot of the same principles I was able to apply even though those completely different line of business. Um, but understanding, you know, cash is king, cash flow, just certain things, being able to, to apply lessons learned from completely different industry. But, again, it's business. Right. Um, and and under, you know, just my husband's and my oversight to be able to, to execute on.
0: Right. Wow, that's great. And so <laughs> after that, where did you go?
1: So after that, we, we physically moved um, into Rockland County, into New York, and I was driving and I saw a big sign McLaren engineering group and I thought, Oh, that's really close to home. Let me see, you know, what do they do? And I stumbled across a, um, I think it was a Marine engineer posting and I, I didn't exactly fit the criteria. I wasn't, you know, I don't have a PE. Um, but I had plenty of experience on Santa and ferry terminal and this port planning job in in the dead in the, um, in, in the black sea. And I applied and I met Shay Thorvaldson who is the department director and now my business partner. Um, and I, I, took the job and spent about a year there and was primarily focused on New York City's Citywide Ferry program at that time.
0: That's great. That's great. And so then you depart and you go Mm -hmm. in 2017, you're hired as a director of project management and business development Mm -hmm. at uh, DCAK MSA Architecture and Engineering. Mm -hmm. So you're now kind of going back and I'm I'm intrigued by the business development part of that. So, so you're now going back into architecture.
1: Yeah. So yeah, to this point, all of my experience was in construction and engineering, none in architecture. And I didn't even know at that time, whether or not I wanted to be licensed. But again, with um, considering any shortcomings, I did see not being licensed, neither in, in engineering or in architecture as somewhat of a limitation to my trajectory. So, I thought, all right, let me lean into my come full circle. That's what I've said I was going to do. Let me get back into architecture and design and, and work under a licensed architecture and practice design. So that was um, the impetus for that. And I spent about a year there and the, the focus, their firm focused more on um, completely different industry, ecclesiastical architecture, which as far as industry growth, there isn't much. I mean, a lot of churches are being repurposed to different programs, but it was it was very valuable in that, again, his an older firm that had uh, a different approach to to business as opposed to a lot of, you know, tech startup firm cultures. Um, and I, I will say even, even experiences where you might not love going to work every day, there's value in those lessons, even if it's, I know, I don't want to do that. Right. And you can turn away from it and go in the right direction. Right. Um, and so I, I had a bit of that. Um, and, and there were days where I was, you know, challenged, challenging myself to stay, vested in what I was working on day to day. But the bigger picture was I need to learn about architecture. I want to become an architect that practices architecture. I need to work under an architect. Um, and so that was, that was about a year there. And I got in touch with Jay at one point and and asked him, you know, what he was doing. Because when I, when I left McLaren, I I left, I say on good terms, I think. (laughs) Um, but I, I had a conversation with him and I was very transparent about everything before I left saying, Hey, I have this offer. What would you do in my shoes? Um, and that's a hard thing to ask a boss, you know, because
0: right.
1: he has, you know, split motivations. Um, but he said, you know, when I made my decision, he said, if I, if I ever go off on my own again, you're going to be my first call. And I thought, yeah, okay, at that level, you know, he's a couple levels ahead of me <laughs> and 10 more years senior in his career. And I thought, okay, sure. Um, but a year later, when I was kind of thinking about, all right, I'm, I'm getting my architecture chops, like, what next? Um, I reached out to him and he said, yeah, let's do this.
0: And so that's when you start Indigo River.
1: Indigo River and TMS Waterfront. So we okay. have two firms um, and we, we share labor and it's um, kind of backed ourselves into being able to offer WBE services and service-disabled veteran-owned businesses, Got it. which okay. we do a lot of public work. So having those um, is a help.
0: Okay. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about each of those companies mm-hmm. and or what what are the services that are offered mm-hmm. and you know how it's structured?
1: Yeah. So we have... We have nine people um, and our our backgrounds all have complementary skill sets but are all different as well. So I have you know background in architecture and engineering. Shea has a background in, in civil engineering and in marine contracting. He ran a contracting business for, for a bit. Um we have a naval architect, an environmental engineer, a structural engineer, a planner. So we have a lot of different um strengths within our team that all complement in that we focus on the waterfront. Uh so we'll get involved, we're not we're not designers of record by any means, but we get involved as early as we can. Oftentimes, it's it's too late, uh, but we focus on the waterfront. So, from project inception, um, you know, concept and schematic design through the regulatory permitting process, which is a lot for the waterfront. You you deal with a lot of different agencies that all claim you know different. They claim the same jurisdiction, but with competing motivation. <laughs> so it's it's a lot to juggle, um, and then through to uh, constructability. You, Cost estimating, logistics, sequencing, because on the waterfront, that's you know very key elements of, of what you're what you're designing and, and how it's getting built.
0: Why do you think your career has gone to the waterfront?
1: You know, it was it was <laughs> a theme just early on in that I was I was placed on the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. It wasn't um, I wasn't looking for it by any means. And then I, I had you know deep sea port planning as well that kind of was laced in there, and I again with McLaren, I I just I had all these opportunities for exposure that I leaned into that I I had some basis to to build upon. Um and so I I didn't go out looking to be, you know, waterfront architect or resiliency specialist, but it was just experience, like building on the experiences that I had exposure to.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And is it is it waterfront opportunities kinda anywhere in the in the world or Mm -hmm. in the US or so it's it's kind of global?
1: Yeah, and I, what I love about it, because I've obviously reflected a lot more on it since it's, you know, one, anytime you go to site, you're on the water. You can't really argue with that. It's right. awesome. <laughs> but um, two, it's it's a really dynamic moment where nature is meeting man-made. And that's that zone, and here, you know, we have an estuary environment where there's high tide, low tide. You know, there are a couple different and uh, Ecosystems that were are always taken into consideration and habitat restoration. There are a lot of different themes that play within this zone of where water meets land, um, where nature meets man-made, and so it's it's as I said, dynamic. Um, and there's so much potential to to focus in on on that edge condition. Um, and it's it's not always you know a bulkhead or riprap. There's so many other creative ways to approach design and and construction on the water. Right.
0: And so, if I'm if I'm a developer mm-hmm. and I have a property on the waterfront, am I calling you first? What what is I that so. process? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've
1: gotten we've gotten involved in projects where um, it's kind of one of those things where everyone's curious. Ever, I, I like to go outside of my comfort zone, but it's also important to kind of know your lane, especially when you're spending a client's money. Um, so, like if I was asked to design a hospital. I have no purpose design. Sure, I would find it fascinating, industry in, interesting, but there are so many others that are more qualified to do that. Um and so with the waterfront, I, I feel like it's not always considered um early on enough in the process what it means to be designing and building in this zone where just the regulatory environment alone is is greater than any other, especially in New York City, is greater than any other site condition that you'll find. Um so Early on from concept and schematic design, just being able to understand what the, the ramifications and repercussions are of early broad strokes decision making and how they play out down the road because it's a long process too to get permitted on anything. So if you can be strategic in the early phases of how are we designing this and why and what are the impacts and how are we mitigating those impacts, those conversations, the earlier they take place, the better more streamlined the process will be for the entire project. Yeah.
0: So the client really should call you first. And I'll <laughs> tell you why. Because probably there's, in my entire, in 25 years, I've probably worked on or had the opportunity to work on projects on, on a waterfront somewhere. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and every single time, I would tell you that the client always came in saying that they had everything that they need. They were approved. Mm-hmm. They were ready, ready to go. And not a single one of those ever, ever happened. <laughs> So, and I, and actually it's, it's funny that we were talking about this because this came up recently with a potential other project mm-hmm. that I was told, no, 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 everything's in place. So when everything's mm-hmm. in place, it gets me a little nervous. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, and like I said, we don't, we're not looking to be designers or designers of record, but the earlier on we can inform that design process, the, the better off the, the end result of the project will be. So we, we team with architects and, and design engineers of record, um, and, and help shape and steer and and direct the conversation and ask the right questions so that we don't get too far along before we have to backpedal.
0: So, for, for in the New York, New Jersey area, did did Hurricane Sandy or whatever they call it, Superstorm mm-hmm. Sandy, did it really affect change? Because I, I I I don't know. I feel like it it did initially, and now I just see a lot of waterfront development happening where it's just essentially raised up a little bit and you know, it's not to me, it's not raised up enough. Yeah, if that's really what you're looking to accomplish. But from your opinion, did it did it change? It did.
1: It did certainly sparked um, an awareness. And and that's manifest itself in in a couple different ways. But with regulators, especially there is this hypersensitivity to what are you doing? And there are there's a floodplain management system. And there is a resiliency, you know, being able to apply New York City Building Code Appendix G to whatever waterfront site you have that you're prone to be inundated. How are you planning for that and not planning to just replace everything, which ends up being so much more costly over the life cycle of the project? If you can apply those themes earlier on. Um, and, and the city has has done a really great job rolling out some of these programs and information around them. Um, so it, it definitely did spark change fast enough. Nothing right. moves fast in our <laughs> industry. <laughs> Hmm. So,
0: explain to me what a uh, transdisciplinary design studio focused on creating solutions that have a positive impact on tomorrow's world means to you.
1: <laughs> so,
0: and transdisciplinary specifically.
1: All right. So, transdisciplinary is easy. In that, I any table that I'm at, I'm wearing multiple hats of field engineer, project engineer, contractor, design engineer designer, architect, landscape architect. There, there are so many different hats that I can wear depending on what table I'm sitting at and with whom. Um, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to what's lacking in the room and filling that void. So if, if we have you know, strong designers that they're asking the right questions for designers, I'll counter with the questions for the contractors. Um, or the questions for the client. And, and a lot of times we represent, or, you know, client representatives that will go in and represent the owner and say, you know, highest and best use isn't this. And, and we'll be able to have the conversation for, for the betterment of the project as a whole, not necessarily any one party, but understanding all of the different pieces that have to come together to create a successful project. Um, the, the first part of that, you asked, you know, better world for tomorrow. What does that mean? Um, I I think in many ways early in my career I was um fidgeting or, or or I felt stifled in that what I was looking for from a company I wasn't finding. Um and so one of the the pieces in, in launching Indigo River was creating what I couldn't find for myself and creating an environment where where I could grow faster than I, I could grow anywhere else previously and creating that environment and fostering uh fostering and nurturing others who are like-minded in that they are, they're ambitious. They're, they take initiative, they're resourceful. Um, we have a kind of a, 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 another business that's an incubator that our, our goal is that anyone we bring in, if you love engineering and you love environmental engineering and you want to launch a firm for environmental engineering, by all means, we'll incubate you. Our goal is that you won't want to go off on your own. You'll want to stay with us yeah. uh, and that we'll add it to our service offerings and we'll nurture and, and create, you know, incubate an environment where, where all of these different disciplines can thrive. Um,
0: and How are you doing that? Are you raising money for that or are you, you know, self-funding it? Self-funding Okay.
1: through, I mean, our, our first couple of projects that we took on were on a retainer basis and that allowed us to, to get our feet under us and, and grow okay. um, with, with kind of minimal risk. Uh, we had, you know, our first year, we had four people. Our second year, we had nine people. And then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And one of the best things that, one of the things I'm most grateful is we we do a kind of state of the companies every year on the, the anniversary. And at the end of our second year, we solicited feedback from everyone. Um, you know, what do you think we're doing well? Where can we improve? It's company for everyone. Um, and one of the things that was voiced was that we were almost growing too fast and we didn't have the right, you know, standards and processes and procedures in place um and so we were looking at you know all these opportunities that were available to us and it's a great position to be in, but it, it really made us focus in on all right, which are the right opportunities for us and, and how are we growing people into roles before we grow the company more? Um and that happened right before the pandemic, and we we said no to a couple opportunities and we we laid we held off on hiring people and then the pandemic hit, which <laughs> of course we were very grateful at that point that we hadn't just expanded. Um and again, this year we, we had our say to the companies and some of the feedback was on, on how we handled the, the pandemic. And I, I think it comes down to trust with employees. If, if you're looking for a business just to have profits, um, maybe you'll do that. Maybe you'll be successful. But for us, we're, we're very in tune with profits. I, I think it's um, triple, triple business line. It's the economic principle of uh, profits, people, and um, planet. So we're very much in tune with people. And that means not only our people, but the client, the end users, the stakeholders, the contractors, everyone kind of in the process of of design and construction um, and the planet. Like, what are we doing? Are we leaving it better than we found it? Are future generations that that need this earth too? And we can't be selfish in in what we're designing for our, you know, 20 or 50 year design life.
0: Right. right. And so is there, do you have a goal in terms of how large you want to be? Or is it just you're gonna? Early kind of on, I thought I go? did, and
1: I and I had a conversation, and uh, I was kind of you know slapped on the wrist of why are you limiting yourself? Why why are you setting any goal? Like see where it takes you. Have your north star, go toward it, but you know do it responsibly. So yeah. haven't haven't set a limit on it.
0: <laughs> I agree. Same same thing here yeah. at Mancini. We had initially we wanted to be you know x number of people right. by x number of date, and the reality is we actually did grow a little too fast, and so we peeled back because um, we wanted it to feel very much like you. we wanted it to yeah. be a family right yeah. We wanted to understand and know kind of r- truly know and value every single person yep. that's here at mm-hmm. the firm and you can't do that when it gets bigger and bigger. Yep. And the reality is just like you, you can do major jobs with with 10 people and we can yep. do major jobs with you yep. know the, the amount of people we have here. You don't really need a a, a thousands of people and an, uh, and, know, and a,
1: it, it also affords you the opportunity to be more selective in what scope you take and, and yeah. make sure that it's aligned with, with what your values are and, and where you are are getting that gratification and, and satisfaction out of your work.
0: Yeah, and I, I want you to talk a little bit about the mission of Indigo River. And one of the things that struck me was, I recently read um, The Codebreaker by Walter Isaacson. I don't know if you know that book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the scientist Jennifer Doudna. Mm-hmm. Um, the gene mapping tool that led to the mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you know, he argues that the past half century has been about the digital age based on the microchip, the computer, the mm-hmm. internet. But now we're entering this sort of life si- life sciences revolution mm-hmm. where people that, you know, kids that studied digital coding will also be studying, you know, the coding of life. And what I thought it kind of reminded me as I was reading, you know, different different things that you what what Indigo River is about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's similar to what you call sort of the fourth industrial revolution. Yes. Um, so, tell us a little bit about that.
1: <laughs> I could have a whole segment just on that. Uh, cool. Um, I think it boils down just simply to two things. Whatever you work on. Or wh- whoever you encounter, whatever whatever you do each day, if you can leave it better than you found it, we'll all be a lot better off. Um, and that applies across you know any industry, um, but specifically within design and within design at the water's edge, there's there's so much that's vulnerable and so much that it's important to be sensitive to. Uh, that the the more that we can have these conversations about what are our decisions today doing sure, five years from now, 10 years, 50 years, 500 years, the more we can think at that scale, the better off our designs today will be. Um, and, and the better off they'll serve the communities in the future. And not only the communities, the, the second part, what I was going to say is, as architects, we have this um, credo almost that when you, when you get licensed, you're, you're not getting licensed to design. You're getting licensed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Yeah. I would argue that it should be the public and the planet. But but in any case, even if you zero in on, okay, health and safety many times is is kind of shaped by what we have in regulation and in, in building code. But if you really zero in on what is welfare of people, what does that mean to be responsible to protect the welfare of people? And there's no time limit. It's not welfare of the client that's paying for the project or welfare of the end user the day the, the red yeah. ribbon is cut. It's welfare of people. And when we think about society and we think about the timeline of, of how long we've been on earth and, and what our lifespan is within, within that. We have to think of the welfare of our kids and their kids and their kids and, and future generations. And so with every design decision, if we can be thinking, leave it better than you found it and protecting the welfare of people that That to me, whatever means we have to accomplish that, that's what it all rolls up to okay, yeah,
0: that makes sense and and so being a mission you know based company, how do you go about acquiring clients that are in line with that mission, specifically because you're you know you're focused on a certain you know the water the water's mm-hmm. edge that kind of thing how do you what's that process like for you?
1: So, we, we we have a good portfolio of public and private work, um, and I think that in itself is really important to be diversified because on the one hand, uh, again, we could have a whole session on on how architects value themselves within the industry. Um, I think the hourly model is completely outdated and does not do any architect justice. That is um, definitely a theme here <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, it, it should be so much more of a value proposition. I wish we could completely turn it on its head and almost like take equity in our clients' projects and, and work on that. Um, because then I feel the, the, the investment that would take place is, is that it's an investment. It's not a transaction of, all right, you did one hour of work. You get this much money. It's, it's, what are you building? What are you creating? And what does that mean? What is its purpose? And there, there are bigger questions that when we take, yes, we all need profits. We all need money to make the, the wheel go round. But if we can begin to think of other ways that we're adding value that are, they're not quantitative. They're, they're a little bit more abstract. They're a little bit more subjective. But, but if we're understanding what's going on in the world around us in terms of climate change, sea level rise, all, all these things, um, and we can let those inform our decisions to, to help drive everything we do, we're going to be better off.
0: Yeah. yeah I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks and we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. So so part of what we do here is take a critical look at how architects work with their clients and mm-hmm. the process of how we deliver projects. Um, you have a unique perspective, obviously, mm-hmm. having kind of the architect and engineering side and the larger public works, the international work, mm-hmm. uh, being an entrepreneur. Um, In your opinion, uh, what do architects do well and what do they do wrong?
1: Good architects listen and they listen not only to the client, but to the community, to the the larger themes of of societal trends. Um, And what do they do wrong? They have an ego sometimes. They impose architecture, design prowess that is great. But if it's not connected to the needs of a community and it's not sustainable and it's not resilient, it's a lost opportunity. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. Very well said. Mm -hmm. Very, very well said. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked a little bit about the actual business model for for architects and engineers. I mean, it basically is I work an hour, I get paid X Mm -hmm. amount of dollars or in, you know, like an interiors project that's per square foot. You get paid a certain you know dollar Mm -hmm. or whatever per square foot, and it becomes commoditized. One thing you mentioned before was sort of taking a stake in somebody's, you know, outcome of their mm-hmm. business, right, as a yeah. result. Um, what are some other ideas that that you have kind of kicking around in terms of the process of how the, or the business model behind the way an architect and engineer gets paid?
1: I think there's a lot to be learned from industrial engineering um, and to be able to apply those principles to architecture. If you can design something for a client in such a way that they didn't even know they were missing it, but you can streamline their business to run much more efficiently, you should get a stake of that. And that should be that should always be your motivation is what's really best for the for the client. Not what they're not always what they're asking for, but what is the best outcome for this project, for this site, for this program. Um, and sometimes I, I hate that the, the um, I think the AIA-based contract is generally the, the client comes to you with a site and with a program, I think site selection is so important and the architect should be involved from day one. And I think programming is also, I cringe sometimes when we get a program from someone and I think this is a lost opportunity for this site. It's so many other things that we could do with the site, but the, the program is already, um, kind of defined in a way that's restrictive. Um, So the earlier on the architect can get involved in the process and truly as a partner with the developer, it's harder on public jobs. And I understand when agencies are are spending tax dollars, you want to do something that's tried and true, you want to know the end results. But that's in many ways why we have a diversified portfolio that we can work with private clients and private developers that are a little bit more open to trying something outside of the box, um, and and then hopefully modeling it for the public to then piggyback off of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think you have an interesting you know perspective in terms of being an architect and 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 an engineer. Um, how do you think architects and engineers can better communicate?
1: So, some of it I think is really simple. Um, <laughs> Actually,
0: it, just pick up the phone.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, and also so
0: because there's always a there's always seems to be a um, there's a
1: friction and you know, there's a, a disconnect and I, I wish that architects and engineers worked more closely throughout the entire process i wish it wasn't two different industries and two different like any firm that can have architecture and in, and engineering within the same umbrella and those designers are actually sitting down and working through in real time what the constraints are together the better off the project will be for it um so it's it's something that even as simple as like working hours, I, we start our days early and we start them early because we've all worked in the field and we know that the contractors are on site and they have questions already at 7 a.m. And if you're getting into the office at 10 and, you know, catching up on emails and for go to lunch. 7
0: a.m. For sure. I, yeah,
1: but, <laughs> but that's the thing. I remember being in the field and, and there were always jokes about, oh, the designers won't even get to the office till 10, like don't even bother calling. And to me, that was like, we're a team. We're all both vested in the execution of how this project comes out and just the, the working hours, not that it couldn't be overcome, but, um, we like to make ourselves available to the contractors who are in the field executing. Um, and we, we're not a culture of, you know, 12 hour days. We're almost all the time. Everyone's logged off by five. We start early, but we're, we're not dragging it out. We're getting our work done and checking out. Um, and I think that even just calibrating hours or, or working times, um, setting standing meetings, cancel them if you have nothing to talk about, but set a standing meeting on every project with the design team that you can check in on, oh, by the way, and then you know it's coming up. So, whatever your short list of questions are, you have a, a banked time for that conversation, not, oh, shoot, it's passed, it's too late, I'm, you know, sending emails, we're missing each other. It's um, just, you know, project management 101, communicate.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And honestly, now with, uh, you know, the fact that you can do video mm-hmm. meetings, it should be a lot easier to do. And yeah. that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about that process of the designers, you know, kind of staying up all night. It goes right back to the studio environment, right? It really is just this, it's drilled into the architect and design student to just, Mm You know the longer you work, the later you yeah. work, the better you are mm-hmm. at it, which is just a, it's a bizarre yeah. um, you know well, and I'm, it's not
1: fair to the client too to be spending hours endlessly like there's the responsibility that comes with exactly understanding what the the forecasted hours should be for a certain task and it's it's a really hard thing to do to pivot between you know task oriented and then creative design. but I feel like the more that every person can transition between those spaces, the more respect you have for both
0: right absolutely. Um, at Indigo River, uh, you say that you're inspired by overlapping design technology and nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so what opportunities do you see for technology to help the the process?
1: One of the things with technology, I feel like kids coming out of school today have so much more technical prowess and there's just this imbalance with uh, especially older firms that have you know a more um, Kind of predictable career path and and raise and and title structure and and there's this imbalance of yeah there is industry experience and that is valuable but there is also new technology that can make so much more efficient everything done in the office and to not value those both not not necessarily equal but to not have those um, collaborative sessions to be able to get both of those strengths on the same project uh to me, again, is is it, it's a lost opportunity, and so I think kids coming out of school that have this technological prowess, it's hard to change a firm culture if they're not embracing technology. Uh, I think if I wasn't running a firm, I would be looking for a firm like Mancini Duffy that has <laughs> embraced technology to the betterment of the industry. Yeah. Um, and it's a hard thing to do because it's it can be prohibitively cost expensive. But that's the thing that when when it becomes available to start using day to day. The industry is better for it. And not only the industry, I mean, we're the industry that's quite literally shaping the built world so the world becomes better for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree here. Same thing. I mean, it's the, the ideas we invested early on in the yeah. technology, but the, the benefits from that have been the not, not just kind of where we started with the mm-hmm. ideas, but the people that we've attracted. Yeah that now have a whole new set of ideas. Yeah. And yeah, as like I use my kids as an example, you know, they, they do things on their iPad, on their iPad that's so uh, second nature to yeah. them. I mean, there's it's a program amazing. where they, they take photographs and then they use their pen and they cut out the people yeah. It's Somehow, intuitive. It, it, it's yeah. unbelievable. That used to take me hours in yeah. Photoshop to do. Um, so, to they, not
1: embrace and harness that exactly. to me. It's like, why? why? Why are we doing things the way we did them in the 50s? It makes zero... Why are we exactly going to 2D only to go to 3D to 4D? Like, why?
0: <laughs> yep. And when someone comes here and says, hey, there's a new piece of software, you know, yeah. I think we should get it. I say, absolutely. Let's get yeah. it. Let's see what it can bring to the table. We have A, a guy here is obsessed about bringing a robot uh, mm-hmm. into our design lab. Still not sure why we need a robot, but he's passionate about it. So I'm sure if we get a robot, we'll figure out what to do with it. So Awesome. Love it. <laughs> um, so we have a responsibility as designers to face climate change. Um, you know, we we can lead the effort. Do you think truly that architects and engineers are up for this task? Or is this more of a... Is this more like a lead thing where you're checking boxes and you're just sort of going through the motions? Or do you think we've reached a point where there really is going to be meaningful change and that we can lead it?
1: If we're going to be successful, there has to be. It cannot be a secondary set of guidelines or principles. It has to be ingrained. I mean, I love that leads or U.S. Green Building Council's mission is to be obsolete within originally, I think it was 10 years. That's that's framing it so that there's no checklist anymore. It's inherent in the yeah. design project or design process, um, and to me, that's that is a responsible thing, and we should all be embracing that. And it's it shouldn't be um, you know a secondary set of boxes to check. It should be ingrained in our day to day of how we think about the built world too. That there's there's a carbon footprint for every decision that we're making, and to be connected to what that means is an important responsibility. And if if architects aren't and architects and engineers aren't going to do it, who who will? it it can't be a secondary layer of principles layered on top of a design. It has to be ingrained in the design.
0: Yeah. And I think I, the way I see, again, sort of the, the, the younger students coming out of school, the younger generations, they are brought up with this. And so they really do want to see meaningful change. It isn't a, an added thing that we're going to go on as a bonus or sort of a a sub note to, you know, now we have a plaque on our
1: building. Yeah. I'm I'm not knocking the, the, the credentials of it. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a starting so point. important, but yeah, it's yeah. a jumping-off point, and it's just the scratching the surface of of really how we need to wrap into our each of our practices those principles.
0: Yeah. So, well, my last question is uh, kind of bringing it all back around. If you had to do it differently as far as your career goes, what might you have changed? And let me say, I think you've had a very impressive <laughs> career. So, <laughs> uh,
1: I think if I would have learned earlier on, I, I've learned this, but I, I could have I could have learned it earlier. Um, if I would have learned earlier on that, you know, the first time anyone does anything is the first time they're doing it. And a lot of the time you're falling on your face and you're failing at it, but that's everyone's first time. So the sooner you can get outside of your comfort zone, um, and, and push your boundaries, the, the greater opportunity and, and trajectory you'll set yourself up for within your career.
0: Yep. I, right. well said, well said. So, um, I want to thank you for, uh, for being a guest here on the anti-architect podcast. Um, you have an extraordinary career thus far i'm excited to see kind of where you take everything in the future um and I, I i thank you tremendously for being here um and then to to see and read more about indigo river um visit their website at www.indigoriver.com and is there any other website you want to plug
1: uh we're on instagram i'm i'm on instagram where we also have tms waterfront um I've really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Awesome.